You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 1 of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts, Paul Swanson and Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst flat tires, email overload, and the shifting state of our world. This is the third of 12 weekly episodes. Today we'll be discussing the fourth chapter, Original Goodness. This conversation takes us into the diverse perspectives of how Christians have viewed humanity, the good, the bad, and the depraved. Thankfully, Richard draws from his Franciscan lineage to offer a healthy anthropology to pair with a good theology. A quick note, Richard casually mentions the Enneagram in our conversation. For those new to the Enneagram, it is a tool of many functions, spiritual, personality, and psyche. So when Richard refers to Bree as a four, and me as a nine is in reference to the Enneagram typology. Richard, you begin one of the chapters with a beautiful description of the cottonwood tree in the backyard at the oh. CAC. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could share the significance and some of the symbolism that you see with wow. that tree watching over us on a daily basis. You know, over the years, I bet I've described that tree to dozens and dozens of visitors and I must be honest to say it still fascinates me Mm. it's pure beauty Uh, it's a hundred to 150 year old Rio Grande cottonwood that uh, grows in the backyard of our our center and I always say it's our supreme work of art and we have some nice art that's been given to me over the years hanging on the walls of the inside but this is our natural cathedral. And uh, one arborist that we had to come and work on it almost 10 years ago to make it live as long as it could. He said, I've worked on Rio Grande Cottonwoods all my life, but I'd give this the Miss America prize. (laughs) He said, it's just as beautiful as it gets. One of the reasons for that is he suggested it might've had a mutation And so all the branches take these illogical, circuitous turns in strange directions. Well, the total effect, if that is a mutation, is absolute beauty. It's just almost from any angle. And visitor after visitor, just yesterday, again, say, wow, can I take a picture of it or can Mm -hmm. I draw it? So I've often felt... I, I. try to teach a spirituality of imperfection, Mm. that asymmetry, and you fours understand this, Mm. is more beautiful than symmetry. When it's sort of offset, when it's it's supposedly a mistake, and it ends up making it beautiful. And so I say the best example of our spirituality of imperfection is right in our yard. You know, nature is entirely imperfect. If you looked at, uh, at any flower or tree long enough, there's always an imperfection. And it's amazing that in our man-made, and here I can probably use the word man for the most part, 
the, the perfection that we create, I think of French provincial architecture or design. It's just, forgive me, so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all this gilded furniture and symmetry, symmetry, symmetry everywhere, overstatement everywhere. I was just in Europe teaching in all the Catholic Baroque churches. That was our attempt to win back you Protestants mm-hmm. after you left us. Thank you at for the that. Hor- yeah. <laughs> so he said, we'll, we'll make our churches so beautiful. <laughs> they won't that, resist. <laughs> the Protestants will come back. <laughs> well, it ended up being, in my opinion, so ugly. <laughs> you know, like as a Franciscan, I saw several golden Baroque statues of St. Francis. Mm-hmm. Now, that someone wouldn't say, Hmm. this misses the message, (laughs) entirely misses the message, to make Francis golden, or any saint for that matter. So um, we've been raised, and, you know, art ends up again and again being the best teacher of what an era really believes. Hmm. And um, we've been raised on a spirituality of artificial Man-made perfection. Hmm. Divine perfection is always imperfection, always asymmetry, always off-center, you know? Hmm. It's the exception that proves the rule in terms of a tree growing out of one little crack in a rock. That isn't the norm, and that's what makes it beautiful. Hmm. Why can't we learn that? Well, once we separated the soul and soul-making, from nature, I'm going to go so far as to say it was all downhill. That we, we fell in love with words, ideas, perfect symmetry, and called that perfection. I don't think I've ever made that connection before. Oh. You know, I mean, just And in you terms, as a four. I, I know. <laughs> I'm so, I'm I'm really, I'm so I'm, impressed. I am here to shock you, Richard. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think, of course I understand that in art. And of course, I understand that in nature. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's so difficult for me to accept my own imperfection. You know, I really... Yes, and, and that's I, what it comes you down know, to. But yeah. I, I really love how you have said before that you pray for one humiliation yeah, a day. Yeah, I do. I need that, it. I need one humiliation a day. Yeah, yeah, that you make that part of your practice. Um, it's true. And I wonder if oh. you have any outstanding humiliation stories that come to mind of thinking that you really were, were doing something perfectly and you really were not. Well, I've told it a number of times over the years, but actually I don't tell it a lot because it's so humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 14, my first year in the minor seminary, I had come from Kansas to Cincinnati, and the first Saturday, Father Warren takes a, he's a jock if there ever was one, and he took us all out to play baseball, assuming we all played baseball and knew baseball. And I was so frightened because I was never into competitive sports. And I I'd watched baseball enough that I, I can fake this, you know. I, <laughs> and I faked it enough, believe it or not, my first time at bat, to get to first base. And I was so proud of myself. Here I am on first base, not actually understanding the game <laughs> or, <laughs> or what's going on. Well, this was quickly revealed 
by the guy who follows me at bat, makes a hit. I am running from first to second base. I knew that much. And I see the ball coming toward me, and I thought, oh, I can be a hero. I can catch the ball. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I stopped and caught the ball, and even caught it. (laughs) And there was just a stunned silence in the whole field of all Father Warren, the jock priest, and, and all of my classmates just, did that really just happen? <laughs> he doesn't know that he's not supposed to catch the ball. Oh my gosh, that's and, Oh, it was horrible. Oh. And even Father Warren just walks humbly toward me with his head down, wondering what he's going to say to me. Mm. Uh, Richard, I don't know what they did. I was so in shock. But I didn't, I failed the test. Oh no. And uh, I don't... I don't remember the rest of the morning. <laughs> you blocked it, probably. <laughs> blocked it yeah. Out, yeah. <laughs> but you know, at 14, you're so insecure yeah. already. And here I am at this new place where I want to win the admiration of my peers. Yeah. Right. And I utterly failed to do it. Mm-hmm. From then on, they knew I knew nothing about sports. Competitive sports, I still know nothing about it. It's boring to me. Because it's all based on this whole thing of win-lose. Yeah. <laughs> then I was corrected. That's right. I can go forward with the story. In my novitiate, four years later, um, we're out playing baseball again. Now then, I at least <laughs> learned how to play. Now, we played in our brown robes. Oh, no. oh, yeah. oh <laughs> We never took them off that year. You had to live in it. Uh, so all people would come and take pictures of us. It was so lovely. These monks, as they <laughs> thought, really friars, uh, running in their brown robes. But uh, Father Benno, my novice master, after the first game, I think this is the only time I was directly corrected the whole year. Hmm. He says, uh, Alexander, that was my name as a Franciscan for six years. He said, it doesn't appear that you're really into the game. I said, no, I, I, I guess I'm not that much, Father. He says, uh, you know, I want to see a little hustle out of you. You should cheer, you know. For... Oh, okay. Uh, but he, he corrected me, not harshly. He was too kind a man. But uh, you've got to get into wanting to win. Hmm. I said, well, I'll try. <laughs> but I really just didn't care about it. So that had lasted at least five years. The non-caring about winning or losing in competitive sports. Now I can look back at it 60 years later and see that God, forgive me, I see everything theologically, but God was preparing me to understand the gospel that I'm convinced is win-win. And God gave me a non-delight in winning and a non-fear of losing. Mm. Now, I still hated to lose morally or perceptually, uh, percep- uh, people watching me. But uh, my ego was still intact, believe me. But theoretically, I've always been uninterested in anything framed in terms of winners and losers. Mm. That had to be a gift from God. Mm. Because I realized most of my peers who accepted the norm then interpreted the whole gospel that way. 
And we call it a zero-sum view of reality, that there have to be losers for me to be a winner. There have to be. So you set out to create losers. Mm -hmm. And I'm convinced we read the gospel that way, which for me is a non-reading of the gospel. Mm -hmm. It's not good news anymore. Uh, the gospel for me, if it's going to be good news, it's got to be win-win. Mm. So God was preparing me by, <laughs> by my early mistakes. That's an interesting connection, though, between uh, experiences of humiliation and our cultural conditioning mm -hmm. to always mm -hmm. want to win and, and yes. equating winning with a certain perception of perfection. Mm. Yes. So that... It makes yes. a lot of sense that both they, of those were. They claim, and you'll have to tell me as a mother if this is true, but that the woman, once she's had children, inherently has to let go of win-lose because mm. she wants to love all of her children equally. And uh, uh, she certainly, if one is a little weaker, less smart, or less good-looking, or less <laughs> athletic, boy, she... She's the last one in the world who wants to think that way. Mm -hmm. My little Johnny is just as good as Larry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to communicate that to him. So she chooses a win-win worldview much earlier than the male does, if the male does it at all. Mm -hmm. I hate to make such a generalization in regard to gender because I know it isn't always true. But when you see the... Um, almost ecstatic excitement men get at athletic contests. You know you're dealing with something that's irrational. Mm -hmm. Can I use that word? Does it really matter whether this team wins over that team? They've been so trained to divide reality mm -hmm. and to put themselves in that game of being a winner. And from my side, after years of men's work, they really don't realize what a price they paid for it mm -hmm. in terms of their own soul. Because, you know, once you, you frame reality, win-lose, most people are losers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to win by R is only one team or one person or one talent on America's Got Talent. Yeah. And everybody else so-called loses mm -hmm. or is a loser. I feel like this would be an excellent moment to get an official Richard Rohr endorsement for all men to give up fantasy sports. I, I feel like we should just get this recorded so that I can lord it over certain people, hypothetically. It reminds me, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, I think, is the one who has the joke about how we don't actually cheer for teams, we're cheering for uniforms. Because players get traded all the time, oh. but you're, you, you continue to cheer for that God, same that's team. that's good. I never heard that. And it's so funny because it takes a step back, right? And you're... The, yes. the hilarity of cheering for someone in a uniform versus the people who actually make up the team. Wow. Uh, Let me give you my more gracious interpretation mm. of this. This is probably going on longer than you want. But I think, building on that, the male has such a need of community, brotherhood, camaraderie, and the quickest way to artificially, but really, create it is to create a team that I can cheer for with other 
brothers. Mm. They're at my side. Mm. So it gives you a pseudo sense of, of communitas, uh, mm. brotherhood, without really suffering or sacrificing anything. Boy, these are my brothers. We're all for the Yankees. Mm. You know, isn't that we want communitas? Victor Turner coined that phrase. Mm. And he said that's what's happening at a lot of religious services. Mm-hmm. That if we all raise our hands together, if you're Catholic, you all make the sign of the cross together. Okay, I'm safe. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The person at my right and left also made the sign of the cross. I'm in my community. Mm-hmm. It works, and I don't want to put that down. Uh, that's how we all start. But your example of a uniform, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Like my Franciscan robes. We wore them the whole year of our novitiate. Even slept in them. Mm. We had a pajama habit. Oh, that sounds really comfortable. <laughs> it was horrible. Oh, my God. Especially in the summer. Oh, oh God. Wow. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, further in the, these, even starting the way you start with the cottonwood tree and um, stories of imperfection about the language we use and how do you see that we've limited the image of God by using terms such as infallible and inerrant? Mm, yes. Our almighty. Mm. See, that was such a problem for God. You know, if, if I can dare to uh, interpret the mind of God, that he had to present, he, I'm still going to use, had to present himself as vulnerable in the most dramatic way possible to undo that that worldview. So what else do you call the crucifixion, the rejected Jesus, except a vulnerable name for God, a vulnerable image of God? Because God seemed to know they're trapped inside of this almighty God world. And I'm going to show them that, in fact, I'm revealed through weakness. Paul gets that. When I'm weak, I'm strong. I'm going to reveal myself uh, through identifying with the Israelites who were the enslaved people instead of the Egyptians. I mean, that is the consistent subtext of the whole Bible. And we still missed it Mm. because we still admire almightiness more than vulnerability. We still admire winners more than losers. You know? Yeah, I, I actually was just, because I'm writing something, was reading Exodus 14 this morning. Where, and I wanted to make sure it really did say that. God took the side of the Israelites against the Egyptians. Mm. Exodus 14.25, you know. And I always thought, what does a poor Egyptian think? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I have several Egyptian friends. God took the side of the Israelites against the Egyptians. Well, that's the narrative, you know, Mm -hmm. to get us to change our narrative. Mm. But it had little effect. Mm. Even among, I'm sorry to say, the Israelites. Although in general, if you check out the politics of Jewish people, not in Israel, but in much of the rest of the world today, they tend to be on the side of what we would call the more progressive, liberal 
politics that takes the side of the underdog. Mm. That's pretty true. Mm. Not in Israel itself. Once you're under duress and fear of persecution, you go right back to taking the side of the Egyptians, Mm -hmm. the Pharaoh. Mm. Unless, of course, and I think this is what is being modeled for us, that that there can be a uh, an act of courageous vulnerability begets vulnerability and mm. kind of shifts oh, yeah, the power yes. dynamic. You know, so that seems to be the God example or the God narrative of radical vulnerability in yeah. the face of this yeah. binary of power. Mm. But it requires community. Like it need yes. we need each other for yeah. that because yes. we can't do it alone. Like I think about even what's happening in mm. in politics and Me Too, the Me Too movement. It's like. There's this radical collective vulnerability that yes. then begets something beyond mm. power structures. That's but, well stated. I agree with that. Yeah. It's almost impossible to do it alone. We were aware of that in the first centuries of Christianity in this whole idealization of the martyr. Mm. You actually had to have the martyr's bones underneath the altar to be an official Christian altar. That's how much the heroic vulnerability was idealized. Mm. The first saints were all martyrs. Mm. But you're still making a good point. That was idealized by a small group of people. So could they have walked out into the Colosseum like Perpetua and Felicity, the first women martyrs, unless there was a whole team cheering them on from quietly Mm -hmm. from the sidelines? Or even just have, having each other, like the having camaraderie of yes, yes. of each other's example and story and courage and. Yes. But it's hard. I mean, I want to I want to name that that the reality of of making courageous steps of vulnerability. Mm. That's that's not easy, mm. especially no. in, in no, our time right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, where power and success are so utterly idealized. Yeah. And it leads me to think, too, just within my own small context in life of you talk about Christ as a mirror and how mirroring happens in my marriage with my wife and particularly that I'm noticing right now is with my three-year-old daughter Mm -hmm. where I see things in her that raise things in me, but she's just mirroring back to what I have shown her. How does this relational mirroring relate to Uh, the mind of Christ that you speak of as a mirror? I more and more believe that uh, holiness, virtue in general, is passed on not by the, as much by the teacher method. I'm not saying the didactic style doesn't communicate, but much more by resonance, by uh, seeing it, by having it mirrored and admired in me, you did a good thing, Billy, uh, that you cared about that little girl. We need good behavior mirrored for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what good parents do. It's it's only been, you know, Winnicott and other psychologists of the last 50 years who've unpackaged this whole thing of mirroring. How much the self is created by seeing itself admired or rejected in other people's mm-hmm. eyes. That are the way we look at one another 
matters. Mm -hmm. I think parents uh, learn that the best. Mm. Because you become aware of, I guess by the second year, my God, he learned that from me. (laughs) She learned that from me. That's the way I react. Uh And look, she's already picked it up, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, So, yeah, and of course the way I understand God, because that's the way I've experienced God, but I read it then in the mystics and the saints, is God seems to be the perfect, ultimate mirror and what i mean by a mirror is that which receives everything just as it is Mm -hmm. without distortion without correction uh, without adjustment and that's what we're all waiting for isn't it someone who can know everything about me and still receive me a mirror receives Mm -hmm. it doesn't uh distort or it's not a mirror Mm. so that's why i use the metaphor of the mirror so much in in my book Mm -hmm. at one point i was even wanting it to be in the title but they the uh, publishers said you know this takes a certain degree of reflection and self-knowledge so the ordinary man or woman on the street doesn't get your whole mirror theology mm. <laughs> until they've reflected on it mm. a while. Mm. That's probably true. Mm. So, it isn't in the title, but yeah. it's in the book. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it to be such a helpful metaphor. Oh, is, I do too. Yeah. Oh, I do too. And you've heard that expression from the Buddhist, the mirror mind. Mm. That when our mind can just receive reality without analysis embroidering, adjustment, judgment, that would be the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. I think they're right. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't. Maybe they'd say the mind of Buddha. What would be the relationship between accepting that reality with that kind of non-judgmental openness and yet still recognizing that there's there's something that we're all working Mm -hmm. toward to reveal more of that you know, yes. Christ likeness or, you know what I mean? Like there's a, yes. there's a tension there. Cause in a way one could take that as an excuse to, yep, Oh, yep, I'm just going to yep, receive yep. all yeah, reality. Right. So, so how does the mind of Christ also encourage let, our action? Let me try this and I hope it's helpful. The only people who have the courage and the insight to work for change in a loving way, are people who have experienced unconditional love themselves, mm-hmm. unconditional acceptance. Now, you can go into correcting and, and punishment and threat rather easily, but I'm not talking about that. You don't know how to receive things as they are without judgment until you have once, probably more than once, been received that way. And then you sort of learn how to do it. Oh, it is possible to challenge things in a non-accusatory, non-dismissive way. Because now I know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And most of us didn't get that from parents because 
they're so preoccupied with raising us perfectly. (laughs) But it's why I've seen it in the men's work, why so many people, and I don't want to make an absolute from this, but received it from grandparents and friends. Hmm. Then when they get older, they say, well, mom sort of did, and dad sort of did, but let's let mom and dad off the hook. They're good enough mothers, good enough fathers normally, but you can understand this as young people. You are just so preoccupied with raising the perfect kid, (laughs) (laughs) with with correcting their mistakes, that you end up making a lot of mistakes. So usually by your 40s, you start putting your mom and dad on a pedestal. God, she was patient with me. Mm. But in your teens and your 20s, you can't see that yet. Mm. And I want to say that uh, because people waste a good 20 years hating their parents. Mm. Um, And it's... They're not yet trained as mirrors normally. Mm. They can't mirror you perfectly. They're too eager to protect you. They're too eager to uh, raise up a type, no, type A personality wouldn't work, (laughs) a wonderful personality. Mm. Mm. Um, But they have their own stuff. I mean, yeah, like that makes perfect sense. Yeah, they still have their own stuff. It's amazing to me. How, you, how far your generation has gone, mm-hmm. those of you in your 30s now. To know all that, to want to do it perfectly, <laughs> and yet even you will make oh, mistakes. I, I already <laughs> have that figured out. I, I've already screwed my kids up. <laughs> I don't even screw them oh, up. Oh, well, I don't but, know. But, um, yeah, they will come back to you when they're in their 30s. Mom, why were you that way? Or Daddy, why... <laughs> So if you yeah. could accept that, that will accept your own imperfection. Mm-hmm. And that's what psychologically we meant by original sin. Mm-hmm. With the best of intentions, parents will make mistakes mm-hmm. and pass on the wounded human situation to their children. You cannot not, because you are imperfect too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a great time, I think, to talk about original sin. And Brie, I know that you have a question. (laughs) Well, I was just, I was looking at you because, you know, anytime we we talk about original sin, I get a little fussy about Mm. Augustine and and what he handed us, which feels like, I mean, poor guy. I know. I mean, really, like, I I just, I just, (laughs) he had a really hard time accepting himself and all of himself. That's what it come down to. And and so we we have a lot of baggage around this notion of original sin. Um, But but what's your take on it? Because I know you have a different perspective, Richard. Which I think is biblical, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Can I I ask, uh, and uh, you were both raised in different Protestant churches. You had the phrase original sin? Mm -hmm. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. That's another example of how you thought you reformed Catholicism and you repeated the same thing all over again. I mean, I think we even made it worse because it wasn't just original sin, but it was particularly, I mean, yeah. Eve really screwed things up. <laughs> <laughs> really, so. Okay. I think we've got to begin the way the Bible begins with original blessing, original innocence, original goodness. 
I use those three phrases almost interchangeably, and some prefer one or the other. You've heard me say it in other contexts. You can't start with the problem. You can't start with negativity. You can't start with no. Or for some terrible reason, it's hard to get beyond the negative, Mm. beyond the forever solving of the negative problem. Like Christianity became in the eyes of many clergy, and they accepted this role, what I call sin management. It was all managing the problem, managing the problem, and making God's only vocation and role, or Jesus' only vocation, the managing of this problem of sin. Mm. Do you realize how that's sort of, yeah, a a negative foundation? Mm -hmm. Sin management. When we priests made our role into the forgiving of sin, said we were the only ones who could do it. And it all just came from taking ourselves too seriously Mm. or taking the gospel as a job of sin management. Mm. That's what happens when you begin with original sin. Mm. Now, you obviously already know that phrase is not in the Bible. It was created four centuries later by a wonderful man, and I mean that, uh, Augustine. Mm-hmm. I'll take he, your word for it. <laughs> We're still working on that. We're still working on that. Most people are. It's like Paul. Paul and Augustine are the two superheroes, if you'll allow me to say that. And the greater light you have, mm. the greater shadow you cast. Mm. And that is supremely true mm-hmm. of both Paul and Augustine. Mm. They're just monumental Christian figures. Uh, who uh, carried a monumental shadow Mm. in the way they expressed their experience of truth. So uh, Augustine thinks he's doing us a favor by trying to explain what we all eventually discover in ourselves. You know, I'm sort of small sometimes. (laughs) I'm sort of nasty sometimes. I'm uh, picky. I'm negative. I'm all the things we hate. He thought he would relieve us from this by attributing this fault to Adam and Eve. And, uh, you know, they didn't have our knowledge of history that we have now. They really thought Adam and Eve existed 6,000 years ago. And this was, well, 8,000 now, I guess, was passed on from parent to child, parent to child. It was genetically inherited. So can you see how this was meant to be compassionate? Don't beat up on yourself so much. Mm. But it laid the foundation for my mother made me do it. (laughs) (laughs) Or hating your mother and hating your father, Mm. which most of my generation got into. That, okay, it wasn't my fault, it's my family's fault. They were half right that sin is a corporate phenomenon. Mm. If you've heard me say, if I get time, I want to write one more book to show that I'm convinced this was Paul's idea too. And Augustine got it from Paul. That sin is a collective notion. The unsolvable human situation. The unsolvable imperfection of reality. 
Uh, and we're really programmed to read reality this way right now. Frankly, let's make it immediate with the present president and leadership we have in Washington, D.C. We're just, how can reality be this absurd? Mm. How can you have this many educated people and we still elected a president of this quality or lack of quality? And then on the church side, how can these priests and bishops and cardinals who we thought in the Catholic world were our best and our brightest show themselves to be this horrible? Mm -hmm. The uh, pedophilia crisis. <clears throat> so I think we're really ready for this message. Yeah. That there's an inherent absurdity there's an inherent brokenness to reality. That's what the doctrine of original sin was trying to say. But unfortunately, we attributed this corporate notion to the individual person mm. and made you nasty and totally depraved, mm. Calvin says. A worm. Yeah. Oh, 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 it's pile like of manure. A, a pile of manure and, and God bless Luther. They had a horrible anthropology, mm. a horrible image of the human person, which they've just inherited from a lot of fire and brimstone preaching, which should have been aimed at the collective. That, that, but we didn't even have the words in the Catholic world till uh, two popes ago when Pope John Paul II introduced to Catholic moral theology as definitive the notions of institutional sin mm. and collective evil. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the words because sin was entirely localized in you and mm. you. You were bad. You were nasty. So can you see a, a good intention, but without some... Uh, here's where good theology is important. Mm -hmm. It really is. Our good thinking is important. Mm. Good Jesuit discernment to, uh, to, to help us make just sometimes one clarifying distinction. Yeah. Okay, he was half right, but interpreted and aimed at the individual and ended up being horribly mm. wrong. Mm. Isn't that, yeah, sad and fascinating. And you know, that's been much of the work of my life, trying to help people make those distinctions. And I end up always saying, probably too many times, well, he was half right, but he was half wrong. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. That's so helpful because it it's, is. it's human. I mean, it's, it's, yes. it humanizes Because I'm going to end up being half right and half wrong too. <laughs> probably much more than half. Yeah. Probably um, just half wrong about fours. <laughs> about fours. I just don't appreciate fours and nines enough. That's right. <laughs> That's what you were wrong about. <laughs> and this brings it for me. Um, as you know, my, my wife, Laura, and I are about to have our second child. Mm -hmm. And we're going to enter that liminal space yes, of, yes. you know, new any life and original now. innocence. Yeah, it could be any day. i got to keep checking my phone, <laughs> make sure she's not in labor. Um, and, you know, I can never imagine saying to my new son, like, you are fallen. And so I think, how do we protect that original innocence while also acknowledging yeah. to them that there's systems that yeah. of oppression and suffering that 
are alive in this world and making their impact as well. You know, I'm probably just building on what I just tried to say, but I think the key is to to unpackage more the notions of collective evil. Mm. The world and really the devil, although we made the devil an individual too. But you know how I talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil being the three sources of evil. We emphasized almost entirely the flesh, mm. the middle level of individual moral imperfection, mm. which took our people's eyes off of level one and level three. Mm. And it seems to me that is what really traps people, that the whole collective, everybody on this street believes in success and competition. Everybody who's here in the pews in the church this Sunday has agreed to this collective lie of capitalism being the best framing of reality. When the whole group has agreed to the delusion, Mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to convict the individual of, of his or her mistake. All you end up doing is giving a fire and brimstone sermon about their individual evil. Let's, let's take the very issue of, of greed or gluttony. Let's be honest and admit those are collectively admired. <laughs> you're good if you're a consumer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're building up the American economy. You're, you're a successful person if you have a huge overstated house. Mm. How are you supposed to enter that world and tell the person, but in fact, greed and gluttony are capital sins. You can't preach at that level at all. So you end up saying, well, I guess it isn't true. Mm. We've almost made ourselves incapable of preaching the gospel because we so situated it at the individual level, admired it at the corporate level, the same with pride, the same with lust, really. Mm -hmm. That's why we're in this sexual crisis Mm -hmm. we're in right now. Mm -hmm. We're a lust-soaked culture. Mm -hmm. And then you're supposed to tell the individual 17-year-old boy filled with hormones not to think about it, not to do it, not... It just... Isn't gonna work. Right. Isn't gonna work. Uh, I'm I'm merely touching the surface of this problem, but uh, until we start ag- addressing corporate sin, collective illusion, until we start. Crit- but if you do it from the pulpit, people. Well, Father, you're getting a little political there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, watch it, you know. Don't critique the system. Mm. Just keep critiquing individuals. And we ended up unable to really critique individuals because we'd already affirmed it. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying the same thing over and over. And I'm still struggling with how to do this myself. Mm. But I'm convinced the Bible is presenting a corporate notion of salvation and a corporate notion of sin. Hmm. Uh, and I hope this book on the universal Christ is a movement in that direction to understand salvation as a corporate notion. Yeah. Uh, and you heard me say, was that yesterday? <laughs> Where I said, uh, 
you know, conversion is when we, when we move from I to we, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where you start reading things in the collective. This is just a huge weight off our back of needing to feel nasty about ourselves mm-hmm. all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. No, we are sinful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, I've said yes to it too. I'm enjoying the fruits of it too. But you, you've heard me say in my earlier writings, the individual is not prepared to use two of Paul's wonderful phrases. The individual is not prepared to carry either the, the weight of glory or the burden of sin. Hmm. Either one. The collective, yes. Mm-hmm. We are Christ. Huh? Mm-hmm. We are, are flawed. Mm. So that's what was good about the original notion of original sin. But what we in the Western church didn't have very much was a corporate notion of salvation. Hmm. Uh, Most will still fight me on it. And all I do is I want you to go back and I want you to study the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Noah, and the covenant with David. Just start with those three. Hmm. Read the whole text. And come back and tell me that Yahweh is talking about the individual Abraham, the individual Noah, or the individual David. Mm. Mm. It is with the house of David, Mm. with the Mm -hmm. people Israel. The notion of salvation from the beginning is collective. This is why I do love scripture. Because this is where I can finally give a, a definitive notion to people who think they're scriptural. Mm. <laughs> and the people who most think they're scriptural have again and again missed the central points, like the identification with the outsider, like the collective notion of sin and salvation. Mm-hmm. It requires a different mind, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. To, yeah. to be able to even um, see the waters that we're swimming in when you're talking about the corporate That's evil. Right. Because That's we're right. in it. Right. And then also to be able to hold the paradox of us being Christ yes. and also us being imperfect. Mm-hmm. And and if I can, I, I'd love to segue Go a ahead. little bit um, and, and ask what the role of contemplation is oh, no, that's, in that. That's a good segue. <laughs> See, the contemplative way of seeing is precisely seeing things in their wholeness. Mm. I've been playing on the word pornography lately. Uh, What makes something pornographic is to take a part and pretend that's the whole Mm. and to idolize the part uh, instead of the whole. Mm. Uh, And the dualistic mind allows you to do that. In fact, it prefers to do that. Mm -hmm. It likes to divide and conquer, separate things, dissect things. In fact, that's almost what it means to have a college education, mm. even if I dare say it, a Jesuit college education, <laughs> is, is to learn how to make good distinctions. But because my distinctions are good, they're valid. Mm. Well, there's a place for that, and I admit that. That creates science, that creates engineering, that creates mechanics, that creates a certain kind of Greek logic that is very helpful. So I'm not to speak against it. I don't want to speak against it. 
But the trouble is you become so expert at that after four years at the university, being the smartest girl in class or the smartest boy in class by making distinctions that you think that's what it means to be smart. Mm. Mm. Now, I'm convicting the church when I say that because we stopped giving our unique and privileged and much broader access point where you know things by participation, Mm. where you know things not by observation, not by speculation, not by analysis, but frankly, by communion. Mm. Stay with me. You, You can't get this quickly. You know what, as the Franciscan tradition said, love must precede knowledge. You only know things that you first of all surrender to. You meet them not with a critical eye, not with the subject-object way of knowing, objectifying it, but subject to subject, where I know it by admiring it, mm. where I know it by recognizing, if I dare say, the 10% that is good and right and beautiful before I concentrate on the 90% that I disagree with, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can almost always do that if you're humble. If you're not humble, I don't think you can be a contemplative because you want to say the smart thing that got you an A at college, you <laughs> that made the professor admire you. And I admit, it works there. It works in science class. We need it in science class. But that's what we call dualistic thinking. And you get so trained in dualistic thinking. And you get A's for being a good dualistic thinker. (laughs) So by the time you've graduated, why would you want to change? Unless you've, and I'll just say it this way, unless you've learned how to pray. I don't know. What? What's he talking about? I'm not talking about saying prayers. Mm. I'm talking about existing in a state of communion. Mm. But we weren't taught to think of prayer as that. That's what we call contemplation. Mm. And I'm convinced that's why the desert fathers and mothers, already in the 3rd and 4th century, started changing the word prayer to the word contemplation. Mm. (laughs) You say, where did this word come from? Because it isn't in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. to my knowledge. But it is my judgment. I can't prove I'm right. But they had already seen that the word prayer had been cheapened, had been trivialized, had been made into something functional, problem-solving. Transactional. Transactional. Yeah. Yeah. And so they wanted to create a new word that showed, I'm not talking about transactional praying making announcements to God and telling God what you need, which, by the way, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount not to do. Mm. Mm. All the key words about prayer are in the Sermon on the Mount. Go into your inner room, shut the door, and pray to your Father in secret. That's not social prayer. Mm. That's not liturgy, Mm. as we Catholics called it or even chanting psalms together. Mm. This is an inner descending into the soul. And all the key words are given in the the Sermon on the Mount. If you take the, there's about three or four paragraphs on prayer. Mm. 
He's describing what we are now trying to describe as contemplation. Mm. So don't be frightened by the word. We had to use a new word to liberate the notion of communion from transactional saying of prayers, Mm. which became reciting prayers, reading prayers, chanting prayers, all of which there's a place for. Mm. But when it overrides the inner room. Uh, it's not doing us any favor anymore. I, that, I find that so helpful to think about contemplation as that deep dive of the soul that allows you to embrace the whole and the things whole. as a whole. The whole. Um, That's and right. I, I was thinking about Parker Palmer just now too and um, his definition of contemplation. Mm, and it's very good. Where he talks about it's... it's um, Contemplation is what helps us cut through the illusions that keep us separated from mm-hmm. the the real. And this term is changing so much. Like you know, we're we're on yes. this we're on this uh, journey in evolution where not just our faith tradition is changing, but even how we think about contemplation is changing. Yes. And I wondered if you could share uh, wh- what is mm. changing about contemplation right now, or how we think about contemplation. You know, we at the CAC are finding ourselves in a unique position to recognize this because our first 30 years, we in great part tried to teach contemplation to our interns, to our students with some degree of success, but a lot of degree of not full Mm -hmm. buy-in. And even the students and interns hesitated to admit that because they felt, oh, that means I'm not a good student. Mm -hmm. I think, and this is just my way of saying it, one reason a lot of people didn't totally buy in, they usually bought in 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 part, it was very compelling, was because the manner that we taught them was more what I'm going to call monastic, Buddhist, nothing against Buddhism, uh, and really a, a pattern or a practice that would be more accessible to celibates who don't have children and family. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, we I don't have a, a wife and children interfering. When I go home, I can easily shut the door. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not saying I do it as much as I should. But I have the complete opportunity to do my quiet sit several times a day. Well, we saw a lot of people who even did do this. And it didn't change their consciousness. I mean, we found out they were still racists. Mm. (laughs) They were still sexist. They still hated gay people. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought this was supposed to change consciousness. Uh, All it was was the new technique. Mm. Uh, The ego is going to use anything it can. It did it with the charismatic movement that I was involved with in the 70s, that speaking in tongues and being ecstatic and raising your hands like you evangelicals do, that was the technique. Mm. And then we discovered a lot of these people had horrible politics, redneck worldviews, if I can call it that, but boy, they knew how to praise Jesus. Uh, In more and more cases, it just didn't compute. Mm -hmm. That here we were teaching this more, what we thought was mature 
form of prayer. So I realized at one point, you know, God gave me the entree into this already in the book, The Naked Now, over 10 years old now. I remember saying there, the real universal paths of transformation are great love and great suffering. Mm -hmm. And the practice of meditation, contemplation, the prayer of quiet is simply to maintain and preserve what you momentarily learned or experienced in moments of great love and moments of great suffering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here we are 10 years later finding an expanded way to say that. And who's teaching us that is uh, people who've suffered. So we're, we're really recognizing that it is time to expand the notion of contemplation. Mm. Not just special practices, which have the temptation of making you think you're special and uh, elite or enlightened, and look at function. Mm. Mm. What functions in your life to penetrate your illusions, and I'm backing up Parker Palmer here, who said it very well, what penetrates your illusions and knocks on the hard bottom of reality? Mm. What has, as Brian McLaren said at our recent conference, the sound of the genuine? Oh, that Howard Thurman yeah. quote. Oh, when I you love can, that. When you can, we all know how to recognize in a moment genuine mm. people, right. genuine mm. poetry, genuine words. That has the knock of the real. Mm. And... Um, I'm afraid even a lot of contemplative teaching, as much as I've tried to pass it on, still didn't have the sound of the genuine. Mm -hmm. Still didn't have, uh, in, in the personification, a lot of times it didn't feel like, I'm going to say it, real people. Mm -hmm. And we, we saw that lack of reality by their... Lack of love for mm. helpless people, homeless people, other people than their group. And that seeing became so overwhelming in the last five years by the politics of American Christians, even American contemplative Christians, that it became undeniable. Mm. That it, we have to broaden our understanding of contemplation and look at function, not just practice. Now we'd say, you know, maybe working at a homeless shelter once a week would function as something that penetrates your illusions and knocks on the hard bottom of reality better than sitting in good Buddha style twice a day on a mat. Mm -hmm. So we're not throwing out, hear this in a non-dual way. I still need my, my silent sit. But I, I have to complement it with what we call in the CAC action, mm -hmm. behavior, participation with otherness. Mm -hmm. And we're calling the otherness great love and great suffering. Mm -hmm. The great love and great suffering are not the way you and I naturally live each day. Mm. We live on the surface of the day, avoiding great love, 
on the surface of the day in avoiding great suffering. Hmm. And I admit that both of those, we're going to get back to what I said before, are experienced by slipping into the collective. <laughs> okay, I'm not suffering right now, I admit, uh, on this day. But look at that homeless man. Hmm. He sure is. Can I look at life through his pair of eyes? There's the movement. Yeah. You know? And I think that movement, penetrating your illusions about you being better than him, is, um, is a, a radical contemplation. Mm. Uh, we, we've got to start saying that. But it was Barbara Holmes' book that solidified that for many of our students mm -hmm. and many on our staff yourselves included, mm -hmm. that here we had a black woman theologian making a very convincing and compelling case for the black form of worship, the black spiritual, mm -hmm. in fact, being contemplative. And you say, why didn't I see that before? Yeah, mm -hmm. and the arts too. I love how she, mm -hmm. she brings the arts and the expressive quality of the arts as another form. Mm -hmm. Yes. Would you say then, Richard, that anything that helps us shift from that me to we is, is part of that function, from the I to the we? Yeah. It almost always has to include that. <laughs> and that would, I know you agree with me, that would even be the danger of the arts. Mm. If the arts keeps you in your little Separate. world of specialness, mm -hmm. right. I'm, I know how to appreciate Van Gogh. <laughs> uh, Poor Paul Kinnis. Yeah, that, that I know you know that could have the same effect. Mm. But if it, if Van Gogh and observing him leads you into universal compassion, yeah. universal sympathy, yes, mm. hallelujah. Mm. How does nature and animals how do yeah. they play a role in our own contemplative scene? Dare I try? Yeah. You know, it's funny, I was just looking out my kitchen window yesterday. And yesterday just became one request or project after another all day. Uh, and I went home frazzled. Uh, and I was looking out my kitchen window. And I saw three doves, morning doves, were on the electric wire outside my window. And I just let them ground me. Because I said... They're not thinking my thoughts. <laughs> They're not comparing about... Uh, com uh, I can't compare them to my way of life. And they appear to be totally happy. They appear to be. I, I hope they are. But I, I thought of those doves as no one could deny that they are real. Mm. I can see them. They're taking up a space. They're there. That is reality more than concepts are. Right? It's undeniable thingness, you know. And I could just feel myself settling. By enjoy I had to enjoy their reality. I had to, first of all, honor their reality, allow their reality. You exist right now, little doves. God knows you're existing. And apparently God is quite pleased with your existence. Now I'm allowing myself to be pleased. Mm -hmm. Gee, I, uh, you know, I, as you probably know, I learned at least some of that from my dog that I had for 15 years, Venus, who I'd so often be working on my computer 
are answering an irritable email <laughs> and being irritated. And I'd just glance over at Venus on the floor and she'd just be gazing up at me. She could hold my attention longer than I could hold hers. And I always said she taught me how to be present more than the Baltimore Catechism taught me <laughs> real presence. You know, he didn't know how to teach it. He just know how to uh, uh, dictate it, as it were, as a belief. So I think nature has the power to do that mm. almost more than anything else. Anything that is natural and outside our world of concepts, man-made, human-made, uh, once we made it, we're too involved in the intricacies mm. of its meaning. But a meaning that is just there of itself, if you'll surrender to it and appreciate it, recognize its wholeness again, mm -hmm. it almost always can liberate you from the moment of over-conceptualization, over-obsession, over that this is the real world. Uh, no, that's the real world. Uh, those three doves sitting on the electric wire or a Venus sitting at my side. I really uh, miss her presence. She died a little over a year ago uh, because she taught me presence. Mm -hmm. I think we were meant to live with animals. Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because almost any animal can teach you that. Now, in lieu of animals, we'll take children. <laughs> no. I still call them animals. <laughs> no, because little children do the same thing, especially babies. Mm. You know, they're, they're pure thingness. Mm. You know, and they're as cute as they are, they still poop and pee. Oh, yeah. There's the imperfection mm -hmm. right at the beginning, right at the beginning. And yet you love them infinitely, isn't mm. it? What a lesson. Yeah. It makes me think of, um, I know, one of your favorite poets, Mary Oliver. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and there is something about poetry that helps connect the dots between, you know, it's like we've forgotten how to, how to just be in our bodies and be in the world. And the, I think that's part of what I feel reflected back when I see my kids. There's this yes. raw, unapologetic belonging. Yeah. And, and animals mm. and nature bring that to me as well. Uh, just kind of freedom so to be. And you know, they can prove this. The advertising industry has discovered this. If, if they want to get your attention, have either a baby or a dog in the commercial. Huh. You just watch the <laughs> amount of commercials that have a baby or a dog. Because we're all just, <laughs> we're all just eyes. I remember being at the supermarket with my mother, who loved babies. And I think that's why we were so well-loved. But uh, there would be a woman with a baby, you know, two aisles over. And she had to go and look at it. Oh, yeah. She had to. Oh, my gosh, She yeah. could not not look at a baby. Mm. And something magical was happening to her. Mm -hmm. uh, it returned, uh, I guess, when we were little or whatever. I think um, in closing, it, if you could share with us what is one experiencing or one experience of mirroring that you have had, of Christ mm -hmm. mirroring mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. have had today. Today. Or this week. Oh, where I was mirrored. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you two are doing it right now. <laughs> Looking at me so patiently and so kindly and, and accepting whatever I say is adequate. Do you think this doesn't affirm my selfhood that, my goodness, these two young people are taking my infinite blabbering seriously <laughs> and they think it matters. Mm. So, no, that's no stretch. Mm. You're mirroring me very well. And that makes me feel very safe. Uh, and that maybe my message could help someone. And so it gives me the desire to mirror the world the way you're mirroring me. Mm. So thank you. What a nice way to end. No one's ever put it that way. Thank you. But it's true. Mm. I'm not being nice. <laughs> <laughs> we got it on recorded tapes. So uh, yes. It's got to be true. You've done that mirroring for so many of yeah, us, you know, that you. in our journeys of not knowing where we fit in the story and feeling yes. outside of mm. the faith that we were given, you know, we need <sighs> our elders to mirror back mm. the okayness of the liminal spaces. And you've definitely done mm. that. Mm. So. You know, you need to not be mirrored for a while to know how wonderful it feels mm. when someone receives you. That's true of every human being. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another name for everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to hear more about these ideas as part of an online community, consider participating in the live webcast of our spring conference, March 28th through the 31st. For details and to register, visit cac.org events. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.